Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. And Jesus is uh, speaking here, and he says, But to you who are listening, I say, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. You know, all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. And the grass withers, and the flowers fade. But the word of God stands forever. And once more, just before the ministry of the word, would you allow me to pray again? Father, um, we need you um, in every part of our lives. and, um, And at times like this, Lord, nobody has come here to hear what I have to say. We've come to this place to hear from you, and so we ask that you would speak to us. As we were able in the quietness of our own hearts to pray to you, to speak to you, so now as as your word goes forth, would you speak to us in those quiet places also? Open our hearts and our minds to the truth in your word. We want to know what it says, and we want to know what it means, and we ask that you help us to put that to practice in our lives. And as for me, once again, I do ask, allow me to disappear behind the cross of Christ, that he and he alone would be exalted in our midst in this day. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, he's not here today, so I guess I can pick on him a little bit. But, you know, Wed Blippert loves uh, to garden. I mean, he loves to grow all kinds of things, from things that you can eat to things that are pleasant to look at. And he really does get a great deal of pleasure all of that. And through it, he blesses other people. Uh, if he were here today, almost certainly there would be some vegetables out in the foyer for the taking. Since he's not here, I guess they're not here. Uh, and he always brings extra stuff that he's grown, and, uh, and he blesses us through that. And other gardeners in our church do the same kind of thing. Webb, I'm sure, um, works hard at growing his garden, and many of us have benefited from it. Now, I have a a different approach to gardening. I'm glad to let someone else do it. In in our family over the years, that has meant Anne. So whatever flowers we have around our place is her doing. Uh, She even knows their names. Um, I don't know one from another. And if we have any homegrown vegetables, it's all by her effort. But although I'm not a gardener, even I know that if you want a good harvest, or if you want lots of ornamentals, you have to take care of what you have. You have to weed, and you have to feed if you want growth, which is the title of our message today, Weed and Feed. 
Although now we're not talking about gardening except maybe in a metaphorical, metaphorical sense. The idea of weeding and feeding introduces us and I think will help us uh, with our text today. And as you know, if you've been here, we've been making our way through the book of Romans over the last year. It's approaching a year now anyway. And it really is a wonderful book. It's the closest thing that we have uh, from the Apostle Paul to a theological treatise. Uh, the book of Hebrews is the only other book in the New Testament which falls into a similar category as this one. And neither one of those were written uh, as textbooks. Uh, like the rest of the New Testament, they were written to a specific community with specific needs. And it really is the genius of God that he designed his word in that way. It, it guards us against turning the living faith into a kind of a mere formula. To truly understand God's word requires us to, to kind of step outside of ourselves and into another world. And when we do that, we find principles there which are, are timeless and which apply, apply to any place and any people. Uh, but we find them in a, a real setting, addressing real people living in a real world. And when we find them in that way, it, it's more like finding fruit that we can eat, which nourishes our soul, than something which merely dresses up a window. Now, it's not hard work, but it does require some effort on our part, but it's so worth it. For God speaks out of those circumstances and into ours. Now, we're in chapter 12, and Paul has laid out his theological arguments in the preceding parts of this letter. And now he's telling the people in Rome way back then how to put those principles into practice in their day-to-day -day living. And today, we're going to be concerned with that section of the book from verse 9 through the end of the chapter, verse 21. And to us, when we first look at all of that, the passage looks very eclectic. It, it almost like a hodgepodge of thoughts. But there really is more order there than meets the eye. Yeah, and it's a little harder to see in the English. It's clearer in the original language in the Greek. But the order is there. Uh, verses 9 and 21, uh, which we're focusing on today, which we have to do for the sake of time, form uh, kind of bookends of this passage. And so verse 9 lays out the controlling thought which influences the rest of the passage. And then in the middle of it, in verses 10 through 20, which we will look at in the coming weeks, that tells us how to apply this principle found in verse 9 to three different groups of people. While verse 21 sums it all up in a kind of a pithy saying, which reflects a strategy that we're supposed to use when we make our way through our world. So I want to invite you to join me once again in the book of Romans in chapter 12, uh, verses 9 and 21. And of course, uh, the guys up in a cave there will have it on the screen on either side of me. You know, Paul begins this section by saying in verse 9, love must be sincere. That's our English rendering. The Greek says, the love, sincere. 
And that language, like others, often left out simple verbs if the meaning was clear without them. But that almost reads like a, a section title. And to capture the meaning for us in English, the translators put it in the form of a command, and they are not wrong. Our love must be sincere or genuine. The Greek word there means pure and unadulterated. Our love cannot be a pretense. It has to be the real deal. And we're not talking here about mere emotion. Uh, we're talking about the love. That's the way Paul put it. We're talking about Christian love, which is self-sacrificing. Uh, that is, it puts other people first. And, and, and it is something that we decide to do, no matter how we might be feeling. That's why it can be commanded to, to have a love which is pure and real and genuine and not fake or phony or self-serving because we decide to love others. And the sincerity of our love really is important. If you've ever um, looked through a microscope or, or a pair of binoculars telescope, uh, unless someone has already done it for you, you have to take some time and turn some knobs or adjust some things to bring what you're looking at into focus. When you first look through that eyepiece, uh, everything is blurry. You don't see what you're looking for at all, or it's so unclear as to be useless. But once you have focused that tool, you see very clearly indeed. You see what you're looking at, and you see it better than if you were looking at it with just the naked eye. That's what Christian love is like when it's pure and real. It focuses our faith for other people to see. It shows our faith for what it really is. And we also, ourselves, see that faith better. We're, we're better able to live it when our love is genuine. It's a powerful testimony about Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so important. That's why we're commanded to have this pure love. And, and you want to know, everyone who sees our faith, as it really is, when we love with that kind of genuine love, they're going to respond. I mean, some are drawn to Christ, and maybe after seeing that genuine love uh, expressed by believers, they, they take their first steps toward the cross. And others see it and hate it. Uh, maybe in time they'll overcome uh, because of that love. Maybe they won't. But I have to tell you that I have never done a funeral and yesterday was no exception, where I haven't seen both responses. Whenever I do a funeral, I tell people the truth about Jesus Christ. And I plant myself at that door over there, or whatever door in the building I'm in, in case somebody needs to talk to me. And some people walk by and they can't look at me. Yeah, yeah, I, I know, you find it hard to look at me too, I know. But... But I mean something different here. I mean, they studiously won't look in my direction because they don't want me to tell them anything about God. And I think, what does that matter? At least, 
at least I've tried to tell them the truth. And at least we ought to let them see our faith for what it really is. Let's not give them what they would call a reason and which we would call an excuse for rejecting it. Let's make our love real. Let's keep it sincere and pure and unadulterated. And that's why we need to weed and feed that love, which is basically what Paul says next. And that next sentence in verse 9 begins with the weeding part when Paul writes, hate what is evil. If love is to be compared to a garden, then you have to keep the weeds out. That old saw really is true. It is not enough for the gardener to love flowers here. She must also hate the weeds. The weeds are the evil things both in us and in the world around us. Uh, The evil that's in us, we must put to death. The evil in our world, we have to stand against. There can be no compromise with evil. It will kill real love. And we're to hate evil. And that word here is strong. It means to loathe it. It means to abhor it, to despise and to spurn it. It's what hatred was made for. And we can understand why. I mean, evil keeps people from life. It it ensnares them and kills them. You talk with someone whose child is addicted to heroin, and you can see the raw hatred for what that drug has done to their child that they love. You'd hate it too, wouldn't you, if it was destroying your child? And we ought to hate it even if we aren't directly affected by it. It's evil and it deserves nothing less than our hatred and our loathing. Now, of course, I have to warn you. (laughs) Hatred has to be confined to evil. We can't let it spill over into other things. We must not hate People, even those people who are selling drugs. We have to take to heart that piece of Christian wisdom which says to hate the sin and not the sinner. You know, the world mocks that statement because they love the sin and don't care at all about the sinner. But we must. We have to hate sin while we love people. It is the Christian way. Our love has to be sincere, and to keep it that way, we have to hate evil. And we need to weed it out, and we must feed the love that is in us. And we feed it by holding on to the good. That's what Paul says in the last part of verse 9 when he writes, cling to what is good. So we encourage love, We, we make it grow, we keep it pure by holding on to that which is good. This, again, is another really strong word, this clinging that we're supposed to do. In the secular literature of that day, it could refer to gluing things together. And so think here about the advertisement for Gorilla Glue. It's used in the New Testament and in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, that is the Old Testament, in referring to the bond as it should be between a husband and a wife or a parent of a child. And maybe for us, that picture of a parent and child can help us appreciate more what God is saying here. My daughter, Adeline, was maybe um, two years old when we went to the beach this one time. 
and she wanted to go into the water and asked me to take her, and I did. And we made our way out into the surf, and we were enjoying the water when a, a rogue wave just broke over us. And it caught me by surprise, and it knocked me down. It pushed me all the way to the bottom and uh, rolled me around there, and I didn't have enough air. Uh, I wanted to get back up on my feet and breathe again, but what I thought about was my little girl. And all, all I could think of was holding on to her. I couldn't let her go. She'd have been gone if I had. And she held on pretty tight, too. I don't know if you remember that or not. <laughs> well, that's what that word means. We must hold on to the good for dear life. Right? We need to hold on to that good the way God holds on to us. We just can't let it go. And the things that come our way which tempt us to let go of the good, though they can be powerful and seem overwhelming, like that wave, that day in the surf, it'll pass. Calmer waters will come. We may be knocked down, but if we hold on, we'll stand up again. You see, Christian love brings the faith into focus. It keeps it real and makes it real to others and for us. And we keep it real by hating evil and clinging to that which is good. Now, at this point in the text, Paul uh, tells those he's writing to how to allow this truth to make a difference in the way they treat other people, whether they are people inside the faith or those on the outside or even those who make themselves our enemies. And as I said, we'll look at those things at a later time. For now, what we're going to do is we're going to jump forward to the te uh, in the text to... Um, to the conclusion of the matter here in chapter 12. So Paul's summary is really a call to action. We're to have pure love, hating evil, clinging to good, but now he calls us to more action, and it's a kind of a strategy which we must employ as we live in our world. So we read in verse 21, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, that's our strategy as believers as we live out our lives. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And if you were to read uh, the different commentaries on this verse, you would find two, I guess I'd call them schools of thought here. Some people think that the evil which God's Word is referring to here is the evil within us, our sinful nature. And after, Paul, after all, Paul had said earlier in this book, when I would do good, evil is present with me. And so we have to overcome that, don't we? Other people think that uh, God's word is referring to the evil on the outside of us, such as when people hate us or attack us. And Jesus did say the world would hate the believer. So we must overcome in those situations, mustn't we? Well, I have to tell you, I'm really decisive in this matter. I, I don't waffle back and forth between the two. I think he means both. A after all, if we're to overcome evil when 
we're attacked, then how do we do that unless we first overcome the evil in us, that, that part of us that would cry out for vengeance? I mean, certainly Paul must mean that we are to overcome evil wherever we see it, don't you think? Whether it's inside of us or outside of us. But I think there's also a sort of a picture contained in those words. Now, at least in my mind, I have this idea of evil which just keeps coming at me. Whether it comes from the inside or, or from the outside, it just keeps coming. And once again, maybe if we go back to the beach, we can get an idea. And you stand on the beach and the waves just keep coming, don't they? Sometimes they're small and rolling and not too difficult to navigate. And at other times they're crashing and crushing and they take all that we have to stand up under them. Evil is trying to defeat us. It, it, it comes at us over and over again. This is a fact for us as we live in this world. And, and there are two ways to translate that first phrase in verse 1. It can be translated the way we read it as a com uh, commandment, don't be overcome by evil. Or it could mean stop being overcome by evil. It could be translated either ways. And maybe... Paul said it the way he did so he catches both groups of people in one statement. Those who are overcoming, we're encouraged to keep overcoming. And those who have failed, we are admonished that they should get back up on their feet and stand again. For evil, even if it isn't actively attacking us at the moment, is always lurking looking for a way to knock us down and to roll us around. And so we have to resist the evil to keep our love pure so people can see Jesus clearly in our lives, so we can see him more clearly. And the way we overcome evil is by good, <laughs> by doing good to others no matter how they treat us, and by being good ourselves no matter how the world around us is living. Overcome evil with good is what we're told. So if you want to overcome it, you do it by being good and doing good. It must be both, you know. It's not enough for you just to be good. God wants you to be good. And then if you are good, how can you help but not do good? And yet sometimes the only way we can get to the place of being good simply by doing good that we know we ought to do. Whatever the process, good is what we must do and be. Now, most of you know, but for those of you who don't, we don't um, do either of those things solely in our own strength. Uh, to do them effectively, we have to rely on God and what he supplies and I know it feels like we're the only ones at work when we're resisting evil, when, whether it's on the inside of us or on the outside of us. But the Word of God assures us that God is right there with us at those times, supplying what we need, just what we need, strengthening our character in the 
process. So you think again of a, a lifting partner when you're doing strength training. You know, you're doing those bench presses and you get to the last one and you can't hardly get it up and, and your partner just puts enough force on that bar to get it up, not doing it for you, but just giving you enough help to make you stronger. That's what God does with us as we say no to evil and as we resist it. And then, too, we had the promise God never lets us be tempted beyond our ability, but he always provides a way of escape. So God is with you to help you to overcome evil with good. And it is not fighting fire with fire here. That's clearly obvious when we think about the evil inside of ourselves. We know without a doubt that doing evil or even thinking evil can't help us here. Uh, it can't help us with that evil inside of us, but it may not be so clear when we're facing someone else who is trying to hurt us. But even here, it's not what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And we can't say, I'm going to treat that person as badly as they've treated me. No, this is a place where we apply the golden rule. When we say to ourselves, I have to treat them the way I wish they would treat me. We must realize the only way to overcome evil is by good, by being good and doing good. And if you respond to evil with evil, all you do is increase the amount of evil in the world. But if you respond to evil with good, you destroy it, or you begin destroying the very evil that you face. It's like pouring water on a fire, or, or giving antidote uh, to somebody who is poisoned. It's not for us to write another word of hatred on the chalkboard of life, but rather by love to erase those already written so the board can be clean again. Evil cannot stand up under the good. There is not enough darkness in all of the world to put out the light of one small candle. And Christian love, when it's sincere, is like a blazing sun uh, at noontime on a cloudless day in summer. That is who we are in the world. We are, Jesus told us, we are the light of the world. And just what does light have to do with darkness anyway? Except to drive it out. Our love as Christians must be sincere. And it's sincere as we keep on hating evil and holding on to what is good and it grows and it brings our faith into a clear focus so all around us can see the truth and so that we see it better and as we'll see that love will enable us to treat other people as they should be treated whether they're believers or unbelievers or even those who are enemies of the faith but our strategy as we make our way through the world is to defeat evil at every turn wherever we see it by being good, by doing good because of good. And by the help of our God and to his glory, the only true God, the creator,
sustainer, orderer, the one who redeems and sanctifies and glorifies, the one who is at work in our world to accomplish his perfect plan, who will set up his never-ending kingdom in the strength of our God and to his glory. By his power, because it's his will, let our love be sincere. And let us overcome the evil we encounter in our world by good. And so, may we make a difference in this world. Yesterday, there was a group of people in here, only a handful of which I really knew. I didn't know where those people stood spiritually. But I told them the only way to reach heaven is through Jesus Christ. That is a message our world needs. It's lost. It's dying. It's on its way to hell. And you and I can make a difference. Not by words. But by overcoming evil with good and loving sincere. Would you pray with me, please? Uh, Father, um, every one of us here um, gets distracted from time to time, and um, we fail in the things that you've called us to. But um, you are there for us, and you call us back to yourself. And, um, and once again, as we, uh, as we come to the cross our failures and our sins uh, we find you right there ready and you embrace us and you point us once again in the direction that we need to go uh, you didn't save us and take us straight to heaven you saved us and you left us in this world because you have a purpose for us here you want to reach others for your son best way that can happen is through us. It is really an awesome task. It's overwhelming at times. But Lord, we want to do it. So help us, please. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and worship again with us?
Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all until we meet again in Jesus name. Business meeting will start in just a few minutes. Please stay if you can.